0: Well, good morning, everybody. So good to see you all. My name is Andy Middlecoff. I'd love to meet you if I haven't had an opportunity to meet with you yet. And uh, I'm usually, during second service, teaching a class. So I feel a little disconnected from second service, which I, you know, I love teaching the classes, but I don't like feeling disconnected from uh, part of our church. But anyway, so it's good to be with you guys this morning. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, You can use uh, one of the Bibles on the seat rack in front of you, and that's... um, I, page 535. 535. Uh, if it's uh, in your own Bible, just turn to the middle of it and a little bit to the right and you should get there eventually. But Isaiah chapter 7, we're starting a new series called The Promised King. And um, I also want to welcome those of you who are watching us online. So glad you're here with us this morning as well. And if you are a guest with us, we're so glad you're here and we'd love to meet you. I'll be out in the courtyard afterwards to meet you, but also there's the, the kiosk in the lobby. And at the, uh, out in the courtyard, uh, people would love to meet you there as well. And you can ask any questions and so forth. But, uh, you know, um, I want to just tell you some good news. So for those of you who have been out at LBC for a long time, pre-COVID, remember those days? Oh, ancient days, right? Well, we used to have bookmarks that were actually bookmarks. And on these bookmarks, we finally got them back. So they're in your seat racks in front of you. You can grab one. Yeah. Ooh, all right. I like that enthusiasm. Thank you. OK, so it's got for each series we do, we have at least one memory verse. And it has chapters that you can read each week uh, that deal with what we're going to be preaching on that Sunday. So uh, it can you know get it in your mind, in your heart, and kind of be prepared. Also, something else we give out for free, you can get these at the kiosk in the lobby or out in the courtyard. There are LBC journals. They have questions to take you through as you're reading whatever portion of Scripture to get you to think a little bit and write down some of your thoughts of what you're learning as well. So uh, I also wanted to thank the worship team as well. I forgot to do that, but we're grateful very much to John and and his team uh, week after week faithfulness. So yes, bringing us... Uh, biblical songs. So why don't we we pray once more before we jump into Isaiah chapter 7. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful to you, to your precious Son, and to your precious Holy Spirit. Uh, Thank you that you hear our prayers. Thank you that you're with us uh, when we're on our own or as we're gathered together as a church family. Uh, We pray that you would, as as John asked, open our eyes to wonderful things in your word, Lord. uh, Help us to see um, the beauty of the prophecies of the Bible and how Jesus has fulfilled so many of them, uh, and, and to see what you want to teach us through that. And we pray these things in God's holy name. And all God's people said, Amen. So I got to read a testimony um, a couple years ago of an astrophysicist uh, named Dr. Ross. So he studies the universe, the stars, the galaxies, uh, and this guy is a brain. Um, He he grew up in a home that wasn't Christian at all. It was very much secular. They didn't believe in God. They didn't go to church at all. They didn't believe in any religion at all. Just, they, they were very, very secular. And at the age of seven, he became fascinated with the universe. And so he would go to his library at school, read every book there on the universe. Then he went to the public library, read every book on that. Then he went to the junior high, then to the high school, then to the universities when he was still fairly young. He began to read everything he possibly could read about the stars, the sun, the moon, the universe. And at a certain point, he he just thought, man, there has to be a creator. There has to be an intelligent designer for this vastness, this design that I see that can't happen by accident. There had to be a designer. And he said, who is this? I must find out who this is. So he began to look at religious book after religious book. Looked at uh, the books of the Hindus, the books of the Buddhists, the books of the Muslims, etc., etc. And he became so disappointed because everything that he'd studied, none of that said anything about it that, that uh, equated to, to reality. It was more like fairy tales and myth. And he was about to give up. And then he thought, well, I guess I'll look at the Bible. Um, he wasn't expecting much. He was expecting the same But when he opened the Bible, he began to see, wow, this fits right with what I've been studying in the universe. And it made him decide, I'm going to study this thing to figure out if this book is true. So I'll give it a few months, and it ended up being two years, right? And and during his two-year study, there was uh, one thing that really stood out to him were the prophecies of the Bible. Now, Dr. Ross uh, came up with some conclusions that Um, on on maybe uh, minor issues that we would maybe disagree with at our church. But overall, he is a genuine believer and follower of Christ. And what he found as he was studying the Bible that fascinated him were in the Old Testament, which is the first part of the Bible, written before Jesus came. It's really three-fourths of the Bible. It had a number of prophecies, uh, clear, straightforward prophecies about the coming of the Savior of the world, the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, And he began to see these and see how many there were. He saw there were dozens and dozens of these prophecies and how Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. So in fact, I have a pamphlet right here put out by Rose Publishers that's really, really good. They have a lot of good uh, pamphlets, but this one is called "A 100 Prophecies Fulfilled by Christ, right? So front and back, it just has the verses and the references to a 100 of even more that Jesus fulfilled at his first coming. And the Bible shows that he's gonna fulfill even more at his second coming. But so, Dr. Ross was looking at these, and and, and with the mathematical mind he has, he decided to come up with an equation. He thought, well, what if just one person, what would be the chance of one person fulfilling even just 13 of all the prophecies the Old Testament has? What would be the likelihood or the chance of that? So, he came up with this and found this out. He said it'd be one chance in 10 to the 138th power, okay, now, that's a number we use all the time. That's boring, right? So I realized that what that means is it's a one chance in 10 with 138 zeros after it, okay? So hopefully you'll see that's right. So you can count them, see if I got it right, but I'm pretty sure that's 138 zeros after the 10. So that old saying, you know, you're one in a million, babe, that's, that's weak now. You have to say you're one in a 138th power What a 10 to the 138th power, babe, right? So, basically, this is practically impossible for a person to fulfill thirteen of the Old Testament prophecies. But again, God loves to show that he's in it when he does the impossible, and we're going to see that this morning in a number of ways and so um just to 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 look at, so what were some of the prophecies that Dr. Ross was looking at? Uh, Now there are more than 13, but I'm just going to go show you 13 and remind you of 13 this morning, just to go along with his kind of calculation. So let's look at 13 briefly, and then we're going to go more deeply into two of them this morning. So um, looking up at the screen, uh, the Old Testament prophesied that Christ would be an offspring of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, and Jesus was. Another prophecy was that Christ would be of the Jewish tribe of Judah, and Jesus was. Of the 12 tribes of Israel, from Judah would come the Christ, the Messiah. Uh, Thirdly, Christ would be born as a king from the offspring of David, and Jesus was. From the tribe of Judah, from the family of King David. Also uh, prophesied Christ would be born in the town of Bethlehem in Israel, and Jesus was. Another Old Testament prophecy was Christ would be born of a virgin. That's impossible, right? That's right, unless God is in it, and Jesus was born of a virgin. Another prophecy, Christ would be eternal, and Jesus was and is. Another prophecy, Christ would be rejected by his brothers, and Jesus was. You can read that in John chapter 7. His brothers mocked him and did not believe in him until his resurrection. Um, Next, another prophecy, Christ would make the deaf hear, the blind see, the crippled walk, and that's exactly what Jesus did over and over again. Another prophecy, Christ would be sinless, the only sinless person ever to live. Are are there any sinless people here? No, I didn't think so. (laughs) Um, And Jesus was sinless. Another prophecy, Christ would be sold for 30 silver coins, and Jesus was sold for 30 silver coins. Another prophecy, Christ would be beaten, mocked, and spit upon, and Jesus was. Christ would be wounded and killed for our sins, and Jesus was. And also another prophecy of Christ, uh, that he would rise from the dead, and he did. This wasn't just some new thing Jesus came up with when he was here, oh, I'm gonna die, but I'm gonna rise from the dead. No, that was promised and prophesied in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus came. So um, skeptics, people who don't believe in Christ, people who don't believe in the Bible, really struggled with this and said, there's no way that these prophecies in the Old Testament could have been fulfilled by Christ. So maybe what happened was that Christians went back and sort of wrote them into the manuscripts, the, the copies of the Old Testament, to make it look like Jesus fulfilled these things, right? So how are we going to prove that wrong? Ah, the discovery Of the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Towards the end of uh, the 1940s, the Dead Sea Scrolls were were, uh, found near the Dead Sea, and I've had the privilege of getting to go there and see some of these, and some of you have as well, Uh, but it's fascinating, and you'll see one example of uh, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls up there. Um, Almost every book of the Old Testament was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, And and these were dated, when they dated them, they were dated back to about 100 to 200 years before Jesus was even born. Okay, so now uh, scholars are able to go back and look and see oh, exactly what we have in our Bibles today, all the prophecies that we have in our Bibles today were there in the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's no way Christians could have gone back and added that in there. It's clear. Christ fulfilled those prophecies, He did the impossible. One person could not fulfill all those prophecies unless God is in it. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen to that. So, this morning, like I said, uh, we're starting this, this new uh, series, short series, uh, called The Promised King. And our hope as we look at some of these prophecies is to uh, stir within you some faith in God, faith in his promises, that he is a God who makes promises and he's a God who keeps promises. Uh, faith in his second coming, hope for his second coming, and also trust and hope in his holy Bible. That's our hope and our prayer for this series as we go through it together. So this morning, we get to look at two phenomenal prophecies about Christ that were uh, given 700 years before Jesus was born. Uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and secondly, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. So before we jump into those, though, I need to give you a little bit of the historical background. Because when this prophecy about the virgin birth is spoken by Isaiah, it's a little like, wait a minute, how does this, what does this have to do with anything? So to understand the context is really going to help us to understand the prophecy. So bear with me as I give you a little bit of background here. So we just finished uh, preaching through on Sunday mornings, 1 Samuel, although we kind of did a speed one at the end there, covered like five chapters in one sermon. And in 1 Samuel, we saw that Israel finally got what they wanted. They got a king, King Saul. That didn't go very well. God anointed a second king, King David. When we get to 2 Samuel, if you want to go on and read that, I would encourage you to do that. In 2 Samuel 7, write that down. 2 Samuel chapter 7, one of the most significant chapters in the Old Testament. It's significant because it's there that God made a covenant with King David. And he said, King David, I'm going to promise you this. That when you die, you're going to have a son that will sit on your throne. When he dies, he'll have a son, and he'll have a son, etc., etc. You'll have a dynasty of kings, something that Israel has not ever had. You're going to have a dynasty of kings. And ultimately, here's the biggest promise, is that one of them would be the Son of God, the ultimate king, the final king, who is the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the Christ. that's going to come through you, David. And that's why Jesus is called the Son of what? David. He's called the son of God, he's called the son of man, but he's also called the son of David as well. Uh, Sadly, a couple generations after King David, uh, the, the, the kings of Israel rebelled against God, and so God disciplined them as he always faithfully does. He disciplines us. So he divided the kingdom into two. So the northern kingdom was called Israel, the southern kingdom was called Judah after the tribe of Judah, And because of God's faithfulness to his covenant, he said, you know what? I'm going to continue to allow, even though there are rebels against me, I'm going to allow David's descendants to be the kings of Judah, of the southern kingdom, right? So that's part of God's amazing grace. And that's where we come now to chapter seven of Isaiah. In chapter seven of Isaiah, it's talking about the 12th king of Judah, where it's just of Judah. There were 20 kings of, of the kingdom of Judah over its history Um, almost all of them were rebellious and wicked against God. But Ahaz, as we're going to read in uh, Isaiah chapter 7, was one of the most wicked, sinful, selfish kings of Israel. And you can go back and read in a couple chapters, if you'd like, uh, 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28, to get a little bit more of the background of his story. But but I will tell you this one thing uh, about Ahaz that is spoken of in those chapters, is that Ahaz... Um, worshiped other gods besides the one true God Yahweh. And one thing that he would do to worship them would he would sacrifice literally, sacrifice, kill his sons, more than one, it says, uh, to those gods, for their blessing upon his life. So God, as he faithfully does, he, he disciplined Ahaz. He disciplined Ahaz. How? Uh, by sending Syria, the same Syria that's still there today, north of Israel, Together with the northern kingdom of Israel, they had an alliance to go to southern Israel and defeat them, defeat Ahaz, kill Ahaz, and then place someone else on the throne who would be obedient to them, right? So that was their goal. That was their desire. And we can see that in Isaiah chapter 7. Look at that with me. Verses 1 and 2. Isaiah chapter 7 verses 1 and 2. Take a look at that. It says, in the days of Ahaz, that's the king we're talking about, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, uh, came up to Jerusalem, that was the capital city of Judah, and is today, of course, the capital city of Israel, uh, to Judah to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it when the house of David, which included Ahaz, was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, which is another name for Israel, Uh, when he heard this, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook like the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Ahaz was terrified. I mean, think about it, all of a sudden uh, you're at home and suddenly there's people that are surrounding your home getting ready to kill you. This is exactly what's happening to Ahaz. And he and all of his people trembled and shook with fear. But here's the amazing thing. God was doing this. He was at work through Syria, through Israel, to come against Judah. But in the midst of it, God shows incredible mercy and grace. What he does is he he sends his prophet. He was kind of the chief prophet at the time. There were many prophets, but Isaiah was kind of the chief one. Sent Isaiah and said, Isaiah, I want you to speak a message to King Ahaz, who I'm disciplining. I want you to speak a message of hope, of restoration, of life. Take a look at it with me in chapter 7, verse 4, the words that Isaiah was supposed to say to King Ahaz, who was rebelling against God. Verse 4 He says, and say to him, say to Ahaz, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps, speaking of Syria and Israel, of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and and, and Syria and the son of Remaliah. In other words, in verse 4, what God is telling through Isaiah to Ahaz, this king, this wicked king, he's saying, Ahaz, chill out. I've got your back. Why why would God tell this to someone he's disciplining? He's punishing for their crimes and sins against? Why would he do this? Because this is the God we serve, the God of mercy, the God of grace. A God who gives dozens of second chances to you and to me and even to wicked kings who sacrifice their sons to false gods. You see, the idea of God's discipline against us, the idea of God's discipline against Ahaz is that it would get our attention and we'd go, oh yeah, it's not worth it to live for those sins. I need to turn back to God. I need to repent, right? And that's what God was seeking to do in Ahaz's heart here, right? what a gracious God he is. And what God wanted to do was for Ahaz to say, you're right, all those gods I've been worshiping are false. I'm going to turn back to you, the one true God, Yahweh. And so God was asking him to trust him. Take a look at one of my favorite verses in in the book of Isaiah. It's chapter 7, verse 9. And this is also something that Isaiah said to Ahaz, God speaking through Isaiah 2. In verse 9, it says, And the head of of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remoli. But listen to this if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Is that true? It was true for Ahaz, it's true for us. God is calling us because our lives are basically one trial after another. Isn't that true? We wish, wish it was all peachy keen every day, but it's just not that way, not till heaven. And we need to learn to trust him through it. Ahaz needed to learn to trust him. God was calling. He said, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. In other words, trust me, Ahaz. Trust in me. What a God of mercy. What a God of grace. So then let's take a look now at the prophecy. In the midst of this, this is the background. This is the setting. Um, what does God say to Ahaz? Okay? Verse 10. Verse 10 sets up the prophecy. Verse 10, it says, and the Lord spoke to Ahaz, of course, through Isaiah. And and he says this, Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, which is the grave, the place of the dead, or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Okay, let's pause and think about what's going on here. What is a sign? (laughs) God says, I'll give you a sign. Uh, a sign is something that could be very clearly seen uh, to show that, to prove that God would help fight against or, or defeat Syria and Israel against them. It was a sign, it was something visible, something tangible that, that Ahaz could see and go, okay, I believe God now. I believe he's going to help me, right? That's a sign. Um, wouldn't it be great if God just came to you and said that? Ask for a sign and I'll give it to you, whatever it is, right? And the amazing thing here is that he says, as deep as Sheol or as high as the heavens. In other words, don't ask me for something small, Ahaz. Ask me for something absolutely miraculous to be assigned to you that you will know I will come to your aid. So of course, Ahaz is going to say, yes, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. I've never heard of this happening to any other king of Israel. This is awesome, right? No. Now, verse 12. Take a look at that. It says, but Ahaz says, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. I will not put the Lord to the test, huh? Sounds pretty spiritual, doesn't it? You know, because that's scriptural, right? You shouldn't put the Lord to the test, and that's the interesting thing. Often when we're sinning, we sound more spiritual than ever before. Glory be to God. I'm having a better relationship with Jesus than I ever had. No, you're not. Because spirituality, by the definition, is saying yes to Jesus Christ. As soon as we say no, you or me, we are the leaders of our life, no longer God. And that's the opposite of spirituality. So Ahaz, thinking he sounded spiritual, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. He says no to God. In other words, what he's really saying to God is, no, I'm not going to trust you. I'm not going to trust you. But instead, he puts his trust in Assyria. If you go back and read the chapters I mentioned to you earlier in 2 Kings and in 2 Chronicles, you'll read about what he did. He said, no, God, I'm not going to trust in you. I'm going to take all the money I can gather from my kingdom and give it to the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the dominant world power at the time, and they were just growing stronger and stronger, way bigger than Syria and Israel. So he paid them off. They fought against Syria in Israel and defeated them, right? He chose to trust in something tangible. Do we ever do that? God says, trust in me. Well, God, I can't see you. I can't see what you're going to do, right? God is saying, trust me. He said, no, I'd rather trust the Assyrians. Do we ever do that? I'd rather trust in my bank account or my intellect or this friend of mine instead of trusting in you, God. So God says, trust me, Ahaz says, no, I will not. So God, in his grace and mercy, continues with him. Right then and there, he says, okay, then you're done. I'll kill you so that the other guys don't even have to bother with it, right? That's what he deserved. But God continued in his grace and his mercy. And he he said, if you're not going to ask for a sign, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And here's what we read about in verses 14 through 16, the sign that he's going to give him. He says, therefore, uh, the Lord himself, sorry, starting in verse 13. We, we, I didn't mean to skip that one. Verse 13, and he, that's Isaiah, said, hear then, O house of David, is it not too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? You're wearying God, Isaiah is saying, right? Here's the prophecy now, verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, listen up is what that means. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now there's a lot that could be said about this prophecy, more than I have time for this morning, but I just want to focus on the main part of it, which is verse 14. And the part of it that we see clearly fulfilled in Christ. So, um, this, this prophecy. First of all, I want to say, well, why this prophecy? Why, in the midst of Ahaz's troubles, would God talk about the future ultimate king that would come? Jesus. Why something so distant in the future? Well, here here's why. Because we have to understand that Ahaz realized that the goal of Syria and Israel was to kill him and to replace him with someone called the son of Tabeel. You can see that in verse 6. The son of Tobiel, a king that would not be a Davidic king. And as a result then, God's promise for a Davidic king on the throne of Judah would have failed. God's promise would have been null and void. And so God is giving Ahaz hope. He's saying, look, you can hope in me still you will remain as king and your descendants will remain as king until the ultimate king comes the one born miraculously another insightful thing about this is that god wasn't just speaking just to ahaz here he was speaking to the house of david if you look again at verse 13 he says isaiah and isaiah said he said hear then o house of david the house of david just doesn't just refer to ahaz but it refers to ahaz and his dynasty those kings that were to come. So this was a prophecy, not just to Ahaz, but to all the coming kings. And then we see this even stronger with the rest of the words, you, are plural. Look at this. Um, Is it too little for you, plural, to weary men that you, plural, weary my God also? The kings of Judah wearied God, even though he can't really get tired. Uh, But you understand the point. So this, this was a promising look. Be encouraged. One day the Messiah will still come through you. I will preserve and save your lineage, the kings of Judah. So then, what does it mean? What does this prophecy mean in verse 14? What is God telling us? What is God telling them? Well, first of all, we'll look at three words, three of the key words. The first word is this, if you look at verse 14 again. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, or listen up, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. First, we're going to look at the word virgin. If you're following in the notes, here's what it's basically saying, is a virgin would miraculously conceive and give birth to a son. The word virgin then meant the same as it does today. Um, some have come across, some skeptics have said, well, what if that Hebrew word doesn't always mean virgin or means something more like young woman rather than virgin? Well, when you look at the Old Testament, look at every single use of that same exact Hebrew word, you're going to find that over and over again, it means virgin. Occasionally, it'll mean something else, like a musical note in the Psalms. When the Jewish scholars, who translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, when they wrote the Greek Bible, the Septuagint, they used a word in Greek that could only mean virgin. And that's the word that then in the New Testament... The author of the New Testament of Matthew used that same word that could only mean virgin. So, this is speaking of someone who was of marriageable age, but not yet married, and therefore understanding that it was a virgin. Now, you read that and you go, Well, that's impossible. How could God have a virgin um, conceive and bear a child? It's impossible. Exactly. Once again, God is trying to show he's the God of the impossible. And to make a sign, really a sign, he wanted to do something significant, something miraculous. Remember, God said to him, hey, ask for anything you want. As high as the heavens or as deep as Sheol. He didn't ask for it, so he says, I'm going to give you a completely miraculous sign so that when it happens, no one can say, oh, that wasn't wasn't a sign from God. You know, um, a while back, I had the opportunity to meet a Muslim imam. An imam is kind of like a pastor of a, of a a mosque, right? So I was at Riverwalk with my wife, just, you know, walking around, and I saw this man uh, bowing to, uh, uh uh-oh, did I go out? No, am I still there? Yep. I saw this man bowing to Mecca. I guess this thing didn't want me to say Mecca on the microphone. Sorry. Um, So he's bowing to Mecca, and I I came up to him after he was done praying, and I I realized, because they pray five times a day, right? And so I said, "Are, are you Muslim? He said, yeah. And so we talked a little bit. I said, hey, would you ever, could I ever take you to lunch, you know? He said, yeah. So we went to lunch and um, just had a conversation. I asked him a lot of questions, tried to share about Jesus with him. And um, one question I had was, so you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, right? Yeah, yeah, we believe that. Yeah, because it's actually in the Quran, it says that. The, The Quran has some correct things about Jesus, but also has a whole host of incorrect things about Jesus. And so I said, Oh, okay. Well, do you believe or does Islam teach that anyone else was born of a virgin? No, no, only Jesus. No other prophet, because they believe in hundreds and hundreds of prophets. No other prophet born of a virgin. Oh, okay. So, well, doesn't that make Jesus pretty special and unique? And he said, Well, uh, you know, scientists have discovered that some insects can become pregnant without a mate. I didn't know what to say to that. But now I'm kicking myself because I came up with the perfect answer. Mary was not an insect. Right? Shoot, I wish I could go back and say that. But. And, and for the I tried to get back together with him, and he never did. Um, but I, I was trying to show him in the conversation, look how awesome Jesus is. Like, let's look at Jesus, right? And, and so I'll, I'll reiterate that with us. Is Jesus the only one in human history besides Anakin in Star Wars that's been born of a virgin? Isn't he the only one? Doesn't that make him extremely unique and special? Yeah, I, this is no small miracle, guys, okay? So, and, and we know it's, it's a miracle, you know, well, how can that happen? God created life. He can create a baby in Mary's womb. It's not a problem for God, right? So let's not get hung up on those details, uh, the second uh, important word from Isaiah 7.14 7, 14 is son. The word son. Look again at Isaiah 7.14. It says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So if you're following in the notes, what is this saying about this son? It's this. Where am I at in my notes? There they are he would be the unique son of God who is truly God and truly human. That's the third one. I I missed the other one. I was lost in my notes. Forgive me. So you already got the third one. There you go. So the second one, the second word is this. The son would be the ultimate king of Israel from David's line. The king of Israel from David's line. How do you get all that out of the word son there? Well, Uh, Those of you who are Bible students know that one of the key concepts is that the context is king. In order to understand one verse, you got to look at the context around it, right? Well, Bible scholars tell us that the context of this verse is chapters 7 through 12. It's kind of like a special unit, a special section of the book of Isaiah. And in that section from chapters 7 to 12, we have three prophecies about the coming Savior of the world, about the coming of Jesus Christ. And the first prophecy is in chapter 7, verse 14. The second prophecy is in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And then the third prophecy is all of chapter 11. And these build upon each other. It starts with chapter 7, then it builds on with chapter 9, then it builds on with chapter 11. And we learn more and more about it. And so looking at those other two prophecies about Christ, we realize who this son is. So let's take a look, for example, at chapter 9. We don't have time to look at chapter 11 this morning, but I would encourage you to go back and read Isaiah chapter 11 to learn a lot more about Jesus Christ. But chapter 9, it's saying, look, dark times are going to come upon you. Assyria is going to conquer you, but one day the light of the world is going to come. The light of the world is going to come and shine in the darkness that you're experiencing. And then verses 6 and 7, one of our favorite Christmas verses, is actually my favorite prophecy of the Old Testament about Jesus. By the way, just so you know, verse 6, it says this about this light that was coming into their darkness uh, to bring them hope. Verse 6, it says, where's this hope coming from? Ah, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son, Oh, there it is, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. Oh wow, this guy's going to be king. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of who? David. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Right there we find out that this son is going to be a son of David and sit on the throne of of David, The son spoken of in Isaiah 7.14 is none other than the ultimate king of kings and lord of lords, descended from King David, just as God promised King David. So this son, born of a virgin, from David. This is a big deal, right? Not only was he going to be from David, also, as I've already given you a little sneak preview of number three, the third word, is this, he would be the unique son of God who is truly God and truly human. He is called, at the end of chapter 7, verse 14, his name is called what? Emmanuel. Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. What a beautiful name, right? He's called God with us. Now, in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, Often people were called a name uh, to, for something significant about who they were, right? This was how it was done back then. So, for example, Jacob, when he and his brother, his twin brother Esau, were born, Jacob was grabbing onto the heel of Esau, right? And so the name Jacob means heel grabber. So you're going to name your next son Jacob, call him heel grabber, right? Now, heel grabber in Hebrew had the idea of a deceiver, so what did Jacob do over and over in his life? Deceived, 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 over and over in his life. God still had mercy and grace on them. So then this son, though, wasn't going to be called Jacob or any other thing. He was going to be called Emmanuel, God with us, to tell us something about who this child was, who this son was going to be. And then in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, which we just read, turn back to that, it clarifies it even more that this son would not just be a descendant of King David, fulfilling the Davidic covenant, but he would also be God in human flesh. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 6, again it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty what? Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Only God has the right to have the title Mighty God, and in chapter 10, verses 21, God, Jehovah, Yahweh, is called Mighty God. Here, Jesus is called Mighty God. He is God. How in the world could somebody be both human and God? God can do anything He wants, but God did it through the miracle of the virgin birth. You see, He was human because He came from Mary. He was God because He came from God. God did a miracle in her womb. He was born the Son of God and the Son of Man. What an incredible miracle that is. So then, did God fulfill this prophecy? It's not a trick question. Did He fulfill it? Yes! Praise God that He did. Take a look up on the screen just to remind us that God fulfilled this prophecy. It talks about it in Matthew chapter 1, also in in Luke chapter 2, but Matthew chapter 1, it says this, um, but as he, that's Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Thank you, Jesus. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Just as God promised, it happened. The God of the impossible did the impossible. To be a sure sign, not only to David and his lineage, but also to us who would choose to look at it and believe in it. How do we respond to this? How do we respond? Let me just give you four ways to respond to this beautiful truth of God fulfilling these prophecies. First of all, if you're following the notes, because God fulfilled his prophecies and his promises, we can truly trust in him. Ahaz had the opportunity of a lifetime. Ahaz had the opportunity to trust in him, but he said no. No. When we come across a situation where we're struggling to obey God and trust God or see our way through the trial, the hardship, whatever it may be, God wants us to say, yes, I choose to trust in you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Don't be like Ahaz who called out to Assyria, help me, help me. Call out to God. Help me, God. I'm trusting you. I don't see you, but I've seen you in the past. Help me. I'm trusting you for today. Because life really is a series of trials, isn't it? One after another after another. And sometimes they pile up all at once. And you're going, where is God? Do you even care for me? And then you stop and you say, no, you got to preach to yourself as John always tells us. You, preach yourself. God is with me. God is for me. He's got a lesson for me in this. He's going to show himself through this trial to me. I'm going to trust him. God is saying to us this morning, look at how I've been faithful to my word in the past. I'm going to be faithful to it today, to you, to me, not just to Ahaz, not just to Isaiah, not just to the kings of Israel, but to me and you today. Secondly, if you're following the notes, how do we respond to the fact that God did fulfill his prophecies and promises and will fulfill? We can have certain hope in him. We can have hope, period, and specifically hope in him, in his promises, in his character. You know, when, when you find people who are considering suicide, why is it? Because they have lost all hope. There's no reason to press on. Why get out of bed in the mornings? But if you know Jesus Christ, if you've seen the fulfillment of these prophecies, if you've gotten to experience the answers to prayer in your own life, you realize there is hope. No matter how dark and dreary and depressing and hard and painful my life might be, I have hope. I have hope. Because God has answered these prophecies. He has fulfilled these prophecies. Thirdly, if you're following the notes, how do we respond to the fact that that God has fulfilled his promises and his prophecies? Stick with Jesus to the end. Do you guys ever have doubts? I have doubts sometimes. Do you ever go through trials and you wonder, is it really worth it? You look at other people who aren't Christians and are living however they want. They seem to be having an easier life, a better life in some ways. Why why continue? What the prophecies and promises show us is just as certainly as he sent his son fulfilling the prophecies of his first coming, he will fulfill those for his second coming. Jesus is coming back. Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit. He lives in us now. Stick with Jesus. Never give up. Those of you going off to college, you're going to hear professors uh, give very eloquent reasons why the Bible is wrong, why Jesus is not the way. Find answers to those questions. We are here to help you find answers to those questions. We don't know all the answers, but we can help you find them. Stick with Jesus no matter what. No matter how many doubts you go through, no matter how many trials you face, stick with him. It's worth it. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Fourthly, if you're following the notes, um, how do we respond to the fact that uh, he has fulfilled these prophecies and promises? Believe that the Bible is true and it's his inspired word. That we can trust this book right here. It's not just another book. It's not just another religious, you know, um, thoughts of, of religious opinions. This is the creator speaking to us through the words of this book so that we could know him, so that we could have hope, so we could have faith, so that we can know how to obey him, so that we could have the strength we need, the wisdom we need for every trial we face. So Ahaz at the end of his life, said no to God. What will you choose to say to God? And maybe there's someone here this morning that's saying, you know what, I, I've, I've never really said yes to Jesus at all. Um, maybe I should. Maybe these prophecies are a proof that Jesus is the real Savior that I need. I'd love to talk with you afterwards or John who's standing up here, anyone on the stage, anyone with one of these on, ask, hey, How do I get right with God? How can I have a peace with God? And we'll be happy to share that with you. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we thank you. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you for the reminder this morning from your word, your true, inspired, trustworthy words. Thank you, God, for making so many prophecies so that when you sent your Savior people would recognize, wow, this really is of God. Thank you so much for that, Father. Not only could people back then have hope because of it, but even today, today, Lord, and I pray that if there's anyone here who has not yet received the gift of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus Christ gives, that today they would receive it and believe it. Lord, and I pray for all of us as who are believers in you, that whatever trial, whatever temptation we're facing, whatever doubt we're having, that You would show Yourself true, that You would show Yourself faithful and, and open our eyes to the truth, to trust in You. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name and all God's people said, Amen, Amen. Let's worship Him together.